0: Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14. Jesus in this context is instructing the disciples in discipleship, and we've been considering this instruction of Jesus on discipleship from the perspective especially of Matthew 19, but... Matthew 19 omits this uh, parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which we don't want to miss for different reasons of which I'll speak. Luke 18, then, in verses 9 through 14, we'll read the well-known parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Hear the word of God. Also he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector or a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast." Twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, will be exalted. Thus far we read this parable of Jesus of the Pharisee and the publican. May God bless it because he's speaking to us and we need to be blessed in the knowledge of the gospel that's brought out in this wonderful parable. But to start, I want to remind you that we celebrate today, Reformation Sunday, as a celebration of the Reformation of the 16th century, which we call the Protestant Reformation, and the wonderful results of that. We are heirs of God and heirs of the blessings that He's given to the church, not the least of which, great among those blessings, is the Protestant Reformation. When we think of what God did in the 1500s, in Germany and Switzerland and, and then later on in England and so on, in all of Europe and beyond, we are amazed. For there was a return to doctrine that had been buried by all of the trappings and the what's called the sacerdotalism, the priestly worship of Rome in the Roman Catholic Church. The solas, meaning... S- sola Scripture, Scripture alone, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. Those five solas. Little is it known and recognized and appreciated, even though that there was far more uh, consequences to all of the world for uh, due to this Reformation, as the Reformation was. Uh, going on in the 1500s, there was this recognition that, um, by by many, that there were societal effects of this. It was a reformation of society. It was a reformation that was taken and the solas that were taken to nations, even to America. Pilgrims evading the uh, the religious persecution were the fathers of our country. And today, the effects of the Lutheran and Calvinistic Reformation and the Reformation on the British Isles is amazing and lasting. We ought to be thankful for that, the doctrines and the effect on society and nations so that there is some resemblance to a society that is something that is worked of God. Uh, To be sure, We're not seeking that we have this carnal society, but it's a great thing when we can have reminders of God, say, for example, written in the architecture of the uh, the White House, not only but of many of the buildings and the uh, institutions of Washington, D.C. But the greatest thing, of course, is the reformation of the soul. And that's what we want to talk about today. The reformation would never have happened if God had not worked in the souls of people to live and die for truth, and the truth as it is in Jesus. I'm referring not just to Luther, but to those before him, we were beginning to see the light of the Word of God, though they could hardly see it, it was a dark time, but there was one such as John Huss, and I'm reviewing this for edification, has to do with our sermons. John Huss, who championed the truth of predestination long before John Calvin, who saw the truths of grace where the Roman Catholic Church was not. John Huss, who saw the truth of Sola Scriptura long before it was one of the solos of the Reformation. John Huss, who was burned at the stake for his views challenging the Church. And it was John Wycliffe, champion of the English Bible, and others, even in the Roman Catholic uh, monastery who were champions of devotion and calling for reform. Then there was Luther. Martin Luther was worked in by God as he was teaching Romans to his students, and he was worked in by God in the heart to be a fire, to light the fire of Reformation in Germany and all of the world. This is the heritage we have of the Reformation, we need to celebrate this. And, beloved, today we would celebrate this, as we always do, by going to the Word. We want to go to the Word today, and this, and not only in the morning, but in the evening, celebrate what God does in hearts, to celebrate where it all begins, the reformation of the soul, the formation of Christ in the soul, understanding of mercy. And this we shall do, God helping us, so that there might be among us reformation today, conversion, understanding of mercy, clinging to Jesus, and fruits of those who've been touched by God to rediscover the truth in a living and powerful way. May God bless us at Sovereign Grace Church, those who may be hearing for a true reformation of soul and of church to the glory of God. I want to consider the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the public. Now, four points. And the first is that these are two men presented here, the Pharisee and the publican, representative, I shall say, of all men. Then, two prayers that they make. Then, two answers. And finally, two with a T-O. To you. It's striking that Jesus, or this this parable, is introduced by the phrase in verse 9, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This parable comes to you and to me. May we hear it. So we have two men. Two men. I'm just going to go through in these first three points, contrasting men, contrasting prayers, contrasting answers. You have a Pharisee. You know, Pharisees were. Jesus takes aim at them throughout the New Testament. His life on earth was a contesting against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and everybody else. But the Pharisees were especially his enemies in debate not only, but in the spiritual warfare. Pharisees were those who were the cream of the religious crop in Judaism. and They were the ones who were to be commended for trying to stem the tide of Romanism, Greek and, and Roman culture, and so that the church of the day, the Jews, could be kept pure. And They were those who were the, the holy men, and the, the holy ones who who led the people into the knowledge of the law with the scribes, and they would teach this, and, and they would demand things even that the Bible didn't. So Jesus comes to the Pharisees because they were religious, but not only, but because they were religious in, in a self-righteous sort of way, and they didn't. They weren't looking for the Messiah that Jesus is, and they weren't looking for a kingdom that Jesus would establish, and they were not trusting in mercy that Jesus says he comes to show. This one, this Pharisee, is is noted for his being really the first Roman Catholic. That's what I'm going to call him. The first Roman Catholic who did works of supererogation. What does that mean? works that were over and above what were required by the law. And so, he says, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, and adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, that's the works of supererogation, the works that qualify to merit for God, uh, before God, but even perhaps for others, I suppose, who would witness these works and who would... Pay homage to a Pharisee. This one, after all, tithed over and above what the law required, which was a tithe of the produce of the land. He says he gives tithes, or a tenth, of all that he has, not just the produce of a certain season. And then he fasts twice a week. Well, the Jews, according to Leviticus, were called to fast once a year, and that is on the Day of Atonement. Perhaps there's other times, but I couldn't find them, but at least once a year in the celebration around the Atonement. This one fasts twice a week. And what we're told by the, the, the knowledgeable in these things of Jewish tradition is that this one was following the oral tradition of the Jews of the day, which was that Moses ascended on, uh, to Mount Sinai to receive the law on, say, a Tuesday, And came down on a Friday, and so that now we ought to celebrate those days when he received the law and came to give the people the law, and fast. So two days a week, maybe Tuesday and Friday, he would fast. He wouldn't eat, children, that's what that means, or perhaps not drink from sunset to, to sunrise, or sunrise to sunset of a certain day. So what, in other words, he was doing was just showing how he was, how faithful to the law and to God, so that he was just quite a guy. His works were what he trusted in. The Old Testament law required certain things. He could meet the requirements. Why, he could even do more than God Himself required. Well, what this was was all pride. And this Pharisee is representative of the proud. And he is all consumed by himself, as the prayer will show presently. And so much so that he divided the world into two camps. Himself and those like him. And all the rest who were not like him and even were far worse than he was. That's why it says that Jesus is speaking to this parable Uh, This parable to some some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So these were those who, by their works, uh, thought that they condemned all of those who didn't do those works and who were even like this uh, publican that he glances out afar off, who were uh, those who transgressed the law of God. Well, this man represents people of all. The world, I would present for your attention. This is the man of Adam, who, in one providence or not, is born into a covenant Jewish home, who adds to <clears throat> his sin a religious form of sin. In Adam all die, in Adam all are proud, in Adam all think that they can do what they want and that they are as God, but this man, he is this religious one who says, In the name of God, I am very great, and thanks God even for making him very great and greater than others. He is filled with I, the ego, and he is congratulating himself and not really praying to God, as we shall see. So basically, here's the self-sufficient one. This is the Pharisee. And then there is the publican or tax collector, Notorious were tax collectors and these were no doubt Jews, many of them anyway, who would on behalf of the Romans who had control of the society at that point, on behalf of the Romans they would collect taxes and they would, because they were sinful, also try to fleece the people. They had a reputation for this. They would bribe people and they would... um, try to be maybe as the IRS and uh, as like a bloodhound and search out whatever penny we can get from the people. And this was all bad according to the Jews of the day. They despised the publicans, the tax collectors of the day, the IRS people. Well, this one was such and note. This is all that's said about him is these tax collectors and everybody who's hearing Jesus would know what that meant. This nefarious fellow, this, this evil man, this one who's no good, who's not even worthy to stand in the temple, at least so near to the holy place, he's just too far off. He's a tax collector. But in distinction from the Pharisee, he is a humble man. In fact, he is someone who just cries out in his prayer for mercy, beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all we know of this man. He's a tax collector, but he's a humble tax collector. He's not thinking of himself. In fact, he's one who's worked in by the grace of God. This is evidently the case because he actually prays and he's actually justified by God. He's one who has... And visited by grace. And when Jesus speaks of this tax collector, he is speaking of a graced man. The other man, the Pharisee, hasn't had grace shown to him. He's still in himself, still in Adam, for all of his being a covenant person, a Pharisee, a religious leader of the Jews. This one needs mercy and knows it. He's the kind Jesus came to call, because he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's the man. Here's a graced man. He doesn't compare himself to others, except that he knows he's too bad for their company. He plays afar off. All he knows that he is on the other side of the wrath of God unless he has mercy shown to him. What a man. He has no virtues, none that are mentioned, except humility, the greatest virtue there can be among us all as well, humility. The ability to acknowledge that you're not the bee's knees, you're not the king, you're not the queen, you're not royalty, you're just a sinner. That's it. You understand that, beloved? There's the Pharisee. there's the humble publican. This one, who is this man who is presented here in contrast to the Pharisees, in fact, God-centered. He truly prays to God and not to himself. He is not focused on other people, saying, Oh, how bad they are, how much better I am than they. He's not even saying he's worse than them, except to say that he is the sinner. He's the chief of them all, as we'll see presently but his focus is on God with whom he has to do. Just God, above. Not some construct God that he's made up in his mind who serves himself, but the true God. See, they're both praying, the Pharisee and the publican, with reference to God, one giving thanks ostensibly, outwardly, to this God for all of the things that he is, and all of the credit that he deserves. The other, acknowledging the same God, but understanding in his heart that he is, before God, just a sinner and is in need of a righteousness outside of himself. Kind of like the Luther man who finally came to his senses and realized he couldn't earn anything with God. He realized that Luther was quite the monk. He'd even brag, I was the monk of monks. I outmonked the monks. I outdid them all in beating myself and disciplining myself, and, and I went on pilgrimages and, and all of this stuff to try to help pay for all of the churches that the Pope was wanting built. And I was devoted to the Pope and I was this uh, uh, presenter of the Mass and so on at cursed idolatry. Luther, however, was turned to God and it was a turning of grace making him a humble monk. Oh, I know, Luther had a lot of pride yet and God used this natural pride slash courage for him to, to force his way uh, against the Roman Catholic Church, but he was a humble man. At the bottom, in heart, you see, there's this religious world that's presented here, and the Pharisee and the publican. They go into this religious world; they're a part of it. The temple's the center of their life, even though the publicans are far off from the altar or wherever else the Pharisee was in the temple. But it's a religious world. God is in the world. But for the one, the Pharisee, God was not in his heart in this world. For the other, the publican, God had come to his heart. And this was everything to this man who needed to know that God was still the God of his heart, his God, in spite of his sin. In spite of his sin, you see, the difference—the difference—was accentuated. The temple accentuated all the differences of mankind. At that day, there were those who went into the the temple and they they'd go into the holy of holies. That was the high priest once a year. Others who would go into the holy place and minister. The priests, the Levites, and others who would be allowed near the altar, and so on. And others who were separated from these holy things of Israel by a wall, and a wall to keep the Gentiles out so that they might not desecrate the holy things of God. So everybody knew where they stood with God and even with the religious community by the different separations that were made in the temple worship. But you see here, Jesus saying... That difference is not the, things that, the, the, the thing that matters. It's the difference that God makes in the heart of a man, in the heart of a woman, in your heart, in mine. And don't say to me, certainly don't say to God, Why did you make me this way? Why couldn't I be more religious and have a better upbringing and less prone to this or that sin? Why do I have this job? And certainly don't say to yourself and to God, I'm glad that I'm so much better than others. You see, humility is something that gives us to see and to be conscious about the fact that God is worthy of everything that we have. And that everything we have that's good is from him. And all our limits, they're from him too. All our trials, they're from God. So here's a religious-centered man and there's a God-centered man. And the grace of God made all the difference. It's always been that case. In fact, I'd submit to your attention, in light of the rest of the Bible, really it's always been that this is only the case, that there's two sorts of people in this world. And the parable of the Pharisee and the publican brings that out. There's two sorts of people and only one God. Two sorts of people. The one person, religious or not, are proud about themselves and they despise others. They're the God unto themselves and with their cronies, other gods that they gather around them. The other person is God-centered by the grace of God. And you see, there's humanity, religious humanity, Jewish humanity, Hamas, and there's the humble All together, on the other side of grace, recipients of this wonderful freeness of life and hope and happiness that earth cannot give us, but God does. That's the Reformation. That's the gospel we preach. What God gives, not what we can give to him first, but what he gives to us. Not who we are, good, bad, or ugly, but who God is, holy, holy, holy. In fact, what Jesus is bringing out here is a sin that was always a problem in Israel, this self-righteousness, the Pharisee sin representing the sin of those who are saying in Isaiah 65, verse 5, I'm holier than you, I'm holier than you. And the Pharisee says this and God is not pleased. Now two prayers, two prayers, second point. The Pharisee prays, it's really not a prayer. You see this, Luke 18, Jesus says, he prays, he stood and prayed thus with himself. (laughs) What a strange thing. It could be the interpretation of the Greek. Could be he prayed with regard to himself. This had to do with everything that he had accomplished and did. But I believe that the proper translation, in light of the whole context, is that he's really praying to himself. He mentions God. God, I thank you. But the rest of the prayer is all about I. I thank I thank you. I'm, I get credit for that too that I am not like other men, and I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. It's I. And he can't even see, though he has all these eyes. I. This is the narcissistic prayer. You know that mythology? The guy who stared at himself in a stream or something like that, and saw himself and fell in love with himself. That's what this guy is, is Pharisee, and he's self-congratulatory. It's not a prayer. He's trying to enlist this God he makes up into the party that should be celebrated for this guy's religiosity. That's what he's doing. It's the height of sacrilege, the complete contrast with true prayer that the, the publican makes, but has God in it. God in it. There's no petition. He doesn't say, "Now I need this, Lord, I need that. He just said, this is what I have. This is what I've attained. This is the distinction that I've made between all of these terrible people and, and other people even who worship. I'm, I'm far better than they. There's no crying out to God. There's no praise of God. Full of himself and his superior status. And it causes him, and this is why you know his prayer and religiosity are all fake. It causes him, because he doesn't love God here but loves himself, also to be a despiser of the neighbor. This is how you can tell that a person is off the tracks. They say they love God, maybe, but they're hating people, despising them with a contempt. That's a terrible place to be. That's why Jesus says the, there's two commandments. The one is the proof of the other, love God and love the neighbor for God's sake. It's not just about loving the neighbor, but the, loving the neighbor is proof that you love God and that you know you're loved unconditionally as you ought to love God the neighbor, and esteem them highly, more highly than yourselves. But the publican, his prayer is all about God. Just a short prayer. Stands far off, not even sure if he's in the temple, but he wouldn't raise, so much as raise his eyes to heaven. He's ashamed of himself. And he's beating his breasts, that's the idea of this, He's beating his breast, this sign of humiliation, and he's saying over and over, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Greek has this definite pronoun, this definite article, the. So he's saying literally, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Like Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners. Here's this prayer, the model prayer for all of us. This prayer of a humble man, a graced man. He says, I'm nothing but a sinner, and not only that, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm not the chief of religious men, I'm the chief of sinners. Notice this. He doesn't have any excuses. God be merciful to me, a sinner or the sinner, because I was born this way. I just have a temper. He doesn't say, God be merciful to me because my parents are divorced. And they raised me wrong. And, and as we noted, when I was in Lacombe, my first charge, they, the excuse given for two boys who burned down the post office was that they had a bad home. Well, that's part of it. But there was no accountability for the ones who lit the match. He doesn't say, even... God, be merciful because I'm a repentant sinner. God, be merciful because I'm a praying sinner. God, be merciful because I'm only human. To err is human and to forgive is divine, right? So I'm coming to you in the forgiveness business. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God, be merciful and I'll try to do better. He doesn't say that. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, we don't know if this is all that he said, but this is the heart of what he's saying here. I need mercy. Help for the helpless. Help for those in a pit. Help for those in dire straits. Desperate help. He needs a desperate man. He is. And he will not let God go until he has an answer, until he has mercy. It's striking that this man is praying for mercy, and that mercy word is used, this word, in only one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and here's the word for mercy, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is a reference to atonement. This is a reference, this word in Hebrews 2.17, to the mercy seat, as it was called, that lid on the Ark of the Covenant on which the high priest once a year would sprinkle the blood of atonement, making atonement for the sins of the people. And therefore, this prayer of this publican is associated with atonement and is evidence of the fact that he is one who knows he needs atonement. He needs God to make it right. There has to be a basis for this mercy, the forgiveness of sins. Yes, we would say because Jesus is teaching this parable and Jesus is what the whole parable is about, that this man had Jesus on the mind. And we need to be mindful of Jesus and his atonement if we would have mercy from God. He is, this publican, someone who knows the way it has to be There's mercy that comes from God only through what God does with sin. There's mercy not pled for or offered or given simply because God will just whisk sin under the rug or throw it all in the barn. It's mercy that comes from Christ. The only way. We speak of mercies, little helps here and there. The government shows mercy, the government shows, you know, gives handouts. It's not real mercy. Because it doesn't have to do with God. God shows mercy. The holy God. Mercy, not at the expense of justice, but mercy, which meets righteousness. And They embrace. So God and sinners are reconciled. That's what he's praying for. What a contrast, and therefore the answer. And this is uh, my third point here. Two answers. The Pharisee doesn't receive an answer. He's not praying to God. (laughs) He's not praying to God. Jesus says, simply, I tell you, this man, referring to the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Oh, wow. That certainly means this. The other man was not justified. The other man was condemned. And added to his condemnation for his fake prayer, his pretense at religion, his pride, his hate, His self-righteousness is despising others. That's how serious it is. That's how serious it is in the church of Jesus Christ when we do these things, these religious things. And our heart is not in it, but our pride is all over the place. You go to your home... And if this persists, you go to the grave condemned of God. Life and death here. The publican is justified. Now, people like to say here that this publican is justified because he prayed and because he was a real religious man. So on the basis of his prayer and his penance, this is Romanism, then he becomes becomes and is made righteous. So they'll find in here some kind of grist for their meritorious mill of doctrine. This man, because he prayed and he, was, he beat himself, flagellated, beat himself like Luther, That's what did it. That's true religion. But that's not at all what happened. Because this is mercy. And mercy is mercy, and grace is grace. And you can't mix them with works, even religious ones. And this is the whole point of the parable. It's not what you bring up to God, even your prayer. It's what God sends down from heaven in shiploads after shiploads of grace and mercy and blessing for Jesus' sake. That's the gospel. Do you know it and do you receive it? Is your religion reflective of that knowledge that's made you the humble, praying, desperate, needy sinner that you are, but confident in God's answer? Do you know that? There it is. He's justified. The Greek word is from the word justified. And the term refers to legal things, to a declaration of God, not a creation of God in the heart, so that somehow God looks at your righteousness and and merit, and you merit something. That's the Roman Catholic view. It's a creative righteousness, something in you. The Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone is that it's imputed. It's a a reckoning by God, the judge, of something of Christ that's been done. So that for Christ's sake, there is a reckoning to your account of his righteousness. This is for Christ's sake and mercy's sake. And what happens is that your unrighteousness is imputed to him. He's the guilty one, Galatians 3. He became the curse for us, and we are blessed for his sake. This is it, the freeness of the gospel. Mercy, from the mercy seat. And this man declared right with God. Even though the Pharisee says, there's so much wrong about you, you publican. Even though the devil said that too. I find it striking at the time of the Reformation they it was quite a battle. And it was a battle against popes and popery and cardinals and bishops and debates, not only against humanists like Erasmus and so on, but it was a battle against the devil. I don't know if this is true or not, but Luther once said he, he saw the devil in his study and he threw an inkwell at him. I'm not sure if You can see the devil like that. Luther was a man of his age. But he was a man of God. And he knew the devil. He knew the devil's ways. And the devil comes to you and to me today and his minions, they'll come on his behalf. And they'll whisper and say, you are just a piece of, put your word in there. Look what you've done. Look what you haven't done. Look who you are. Look what you are in church. You dress up. And your mom and dad dress you up, and you dress up. And what about it? what's inside? What are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? You who may be listening, what are you thinking about? What are you praying about? So the devil has all these words, you see, and This is the battle of the ages. It's a war of words. That's why Luther in his great hymn says, one little word shall fell the devil. Because it's the word of God, the word of the gospel, the word of the mercy of God, of the justifying grace of God. That's what's come to us. And of that we are heirs. And of that heritage we are responsible. Oh, what a answer to prayer. What a gift of God. The justification of the ungodly. And this comes to you, final point, And it comes to me. And I know Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And you say, Domini... Now, Pastor, humble man, how can you say this is to us and have a point in the sermon to you because it's to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others? Surely we don't do that. Well, I will declare to you, beloved, if that's what you're thinking, then. It's exactly to you that this word comes. And it comes to us all, regardless of whether we think we're the one or the other and and all of this, better than the others, because there's a trap that we can fall into. This is striking. See here, the trap that the Pharisee fell into and he was trapping others in was his comparing himself with, with other people. And he wasn't looking to God and holy law and saying, yeah, before God I'm nothing and that's what really matters. I I need mercy. He was looking at others and comparing himself with them and thanking God that God had made this distinction. But really he's saying, I'm the man who made the distinction. Look at all the works I do. Well, the trap we can fall into is this. And listen closely. We've heard of the Pharisee, we've heard of the publican, and now we can go our way and say, I thank God that I'm not like the Pharisee. you fall in into the trap. The Pharisee was thanking God that he wasn't like the public, and we can say, I thank God that I'm not like the Pharisee. Or our church is so much better than other churches. Our family is so much better than those who use the public school or whatever we want to do to make our family better. I thank God that we're not like the heretics, the Roman Catholics, or Protestant A or B or C. We thank God collectively as a bunch of no better than Pharisees that we're not like, and then you put your label. Not like those rascals. Thank God I'm not like the transgender nuts We could say it like that. You see, you go the other way. And none of us is exempt from the temptation, are we? So with the parable is truth and something that's to humble us. And Jesus reminds us of this at the end when he says this general axiom, this Wisdom of God, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And here's the parable. Here's the lesson. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This here, what Jesus is saying, is, as one commentator has said, revelation of the upside-down kingdom... If you're up, you're going to be down. If you're down, you're going to be up. It's simply this. Jesus Christ at work, shaking things up. Shaking your life up, speaking to you today, to you. Preaching to you, to me. Be thankful for mercy. Pray for mercy. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. But God's a Savior. Trust in Him, beloved. Rejoice in Him. doesn't say what the publican did after this. But we can be sure that he bore the fruit of justification, sanctification, holiness. And... This to the glory of the God to whom he prays and who answers prayer. God of the reformation of souls, of churches in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. We pray, Father, that you would bless us. Bless us, Lord, with the understanding of sin and grace, of our desperate plight, and of your mercy that you so give. Give us to pray, give us to be humble, give us to be fruitful, give us to glorify you. Heirs of the Reformation, thankful recipients of the gospel of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Bless this congregation, may we show reformational, godly, Holy Spirit fruit, fan the flame of our devotion, and give us, Father, to be those who are on fire for the glory of God. Our God in Jesus Christ revealed, for whose sake we pray, amen.